You're listening to the Patrick E. McLean Podcast. This episode, that time a cop shot my dog? When I did the absolutely unspellable Shanaki podcast, I lived in this great transitional neighborhood in Charlotte. The neighborhood has since transitioned so much and so well that people like me can't afford to live there anymore. But when I was there, it still had enough Bukowski in it to be interesting. My home was a tiny old mill house on the street behind one of my very best friends, which was nice. There were also plenty of great places to go within walking distance and an interesting cast of characters. When I moved in, I was on a downslope in life. When I moved out, I was very much on my way up. This house was the inspiration for The Vampire in My Attic. It was where I wrote and voiced most of the Shanaki and conceived of and wrote How to Succeed in Evil. It's also the house that Hobbes retrieved the stash of money from in The Soak. And that's a lot of mileage out of one old mill house. I left the place to move in with my girlfriend, who in the course of things became my fiancée, and then, doubling down on a dubious bet, became my wife. The dubious bet worked, though. Sometimes long shots do pay off. Against all odds, I domesticated right up and got serious about the business of having and providing for a family. One of the first steps on this road was the acquisition of a dog. Many couples do this. I did a Shanaki episode about this dog called Floor Piranha. It was not one of my best episodes, but she was a good, if troubled, dog. She was abandoned on the side of the road in the Smoky Mountain National Park and she found her way to us, malnourished, hair falling out, and with the mange. She bounced back quickly enough, and even though she never barked much, she was always on edge. That little bitch was a survivor. Primarily because she never barked, the consensus was that someone dumped a whole litter of puppies out on the side of the road in the National Forest, and all of the other ones were eaten. And one of the reasons that little Annie survived was that she was quiet. The fiancé and I got a house in the next neighborhood over, but we're still friends with folks in the old hood, including a girl we'll call Frankie. I call her Frankie because we hooked her up with another friend of ours who shall, for the purposes of this narrative, be called Johnny. The relationship was disastrous. Nobody got murdered, but it was so bad that after they took a long break and Johnny told me that they'd gotten back together again, I said, oh man, but you guys were so great not together. Some of this, of course, was selfish, because when you connect two friends romantically and then it's not going well, you get to hear all about it from both sides. And you feel like you have to listen because you're a friend, and in some sense this whole thing is your fault. But part of you just wants to sound a collision horn, spin the wheel hard a starboard, and go full Larry David on the whole situation. Anyway, when things were going well, we went on some kind of a double date with Frankie and Johnny. It was a daytime on a Sunday. There was brunching involved. So we walked over to Frankie's house with our dog, and because she was compatible with Frankie's dogs, we left both of them in the backyard and commenced a day drinking in observance of the religious holiday, or, or at least Sunday. When we return, our dog is limping, which I do have to point out is, at this point, our trial child. This is very disconcerting. There is what appears to be a tiny tear on her back leg. As my wife tends to the dog, I walk the fence to see if there's any loose nails or anything. Because it turns out Spiffy, Frankie's dog, has one too, but it's been there for a few days with no limp. There's no evidence of the dogs having been in a scuffle, they always got along great, so I'm looking for a nail protruding from the fence somewhere. I walk the perimeter very carefully and I find nothing. 
so we pack up the dog and go home. I say, let's give it a day. If she's still limping, we go to the vet. Well, the next day comes and our dog isn't putting any weight on her leg. And my fiance is very upset, not just because the dog is hurt, but because of me. Because when we got the dog, I said, there's going to be an upper limit on how much we will pay for one-time medical expenses. Just like a car, at some point, a dog is totaled. So we had a fight about that. And after that fight died down, I told her what I will now tell you. When I was growing up, we had a dog named Samson. My sister and I named him that because we knew he would grow up to be big and strong. And he did. He was big enough for a child to ride. And he was a wonderful, gentle, great Pyrenees. But as that breed will, he liked to roam. And one day, he got hit by a car. Now, we were fortunate enough to be able to afford leg surgery for the dog, but the recovery was incredibly painful. There was a cone of shame in everything, and his entire temperament changed. He became mean. He bit my baby sister, and we had to give him away to someone who didn't have kids, who loved him and had plenty of space for him to run. And still, he managed to find another car to run in front of and get killed, because the pain had driven him crazy. So beyond a certain point, I think it is selfish and cruel to try and keep a severely injured animal alive for your feelings. Would Samson have changed if we had just agreed to have his leg amputated? Who knows? But maybe not. Because I know a lot of interesting people, I know a vet who collects three-legged German shepherds. Not even she knows why this is so, but it is. And those dogs are really happy. They don't care that they're missing a leg. They joyously get on with the business of sniffing butts and fetching balls and all the other pleasures that make a dog's life worth living. Digressions aside, we take our dog to the vet. They do an x-ray and they find a BB in the outside of the knee joint. Someone has shot my dog with a BB gun. And, as it turns out, someone has also shot Spiffy, the other dog, with a BB gun. Spiffy's BB went all the way through the thigh muscle and was lodged under the skin on the inside of the leg. And while we know that Annie, our dog, was shot on the middle of a sunny Sunday afternoon, Spiffy was shot some days before. Both dogs have the BBs removed and make full recoveries, but we are stuck with the problem of who shot the dogs with a BB gun while they were in a backyard surrounded by a six-foot fence. I commence my investigation with suspects and fields of fire. To make this easier to understand, there are diagrams in the show notes. On one side of Frankie's house lived my best friend, his wife, two very young boys, their cat and dog. They don't own a BB gun, and in the 25-plus years I've known them, they've never mistreated an animal. Ruled out. On the other side of Frankie's house lived a young professional couple who were out of town on that Sunday. Ruled out. Across the small side street from them, the young professional couple, was a rundown house that was generally recognized as a source of trouble in the neighborhood. It was an asbestos shingle-sided hovel, which has since been torn down. It was owned by a grandmother that was regularly overrun by hooligan grandchildren, and perhaps abused by them. This family was not well off, and the grandkids had been the cause of several disturbances. We call these people suspects. The last possibility in the, is the house directly behind Frankie's house, where a police officer lives with his girlfriend. But before we get to the cop, it's worth exploring the dynamic at the unruly grandchildren's house, because in my experience, it's something of an archetype. I've seen this same drama play out 
exactly the same in multiple places I've lived in Charlotte. It's a dynamic city, growing like mad, which means that a lot of people see their homes appreciate in value dramatically. It plays out like this. An older generation busted their ass to own a home, in this case, by working in the textile mill. Now, you may think that your job is difficult, but you're really going to have to work hard to convince me that it's working in an unair conditioned 1940s textile mill hard. So those people have kids. And then those kids have kids. And as the grandparents start in on the inevitable glide path that we all must travel at the end of life, the extended family starts vying for control of a valuable asset, the house. And it's a horrible thing to see. In fact, when I lived in this neighborhood, I would often come out of my house to find the old lady who lived next door lying in the bushes or on her lawn. She didn't get around too well, and she would go outside to get the mail or just some sunshine and fall down. And there she would lie, softly crying for help because she couldn't get up. On several occasions, I was interrupted writing the Shanaki and How to Succeed in Evil by her cries for help. I would go outside and pick her up and make sure she was okay. Thankfully, I never found her with a broken hip. But I would always ask her where her grandson was because her grandson lived with her and was supposed to be taking care of her. Most often she would answer, he's inside. My feeling is, if I could hear this feeble old woman crying out for help from inside the next house over, this kid could definitely hear his grandmother from inside the same house, the same 1,200 square foot house right next door. He always had an excuse when I asked him about it. I was asleep, I had my headphones on, whatever. When I asked the grandmother why she kept coming outside and falling down, she said something like, I wanted to get the mail, and I had been outside for three days, and I never saw this grandson taking his grandmother for a walk. The grandmother passed while I was living there, and somewhat relative swooped in and sold the house. I never saw the grandson again, but presumably he was whisked off to take care of another relative. It makes me sad to think about it even now. So something like this was going on in the run-down, asbestos-sided hovel. Teenage grandchildren periodically overran the house and caused the minor trouble that grandchildren got into. Two of them, hopefully not cousins, were spotted having sex in an inflatable kiddie pool in the backyard. And while that lacks style and class, I gotta say, I'm grateful that I'm still young enough to recognize the impulse. Puberty is a hell of a drug. So... There be troublemakers, and it's not beyond the pale to think that they might, in between the smoking of weed and the bumping of uglies, find some amusement with a BB gun. But it's difficult for me to see how they would have a shot from three and a half lots away with no elevation, because of the six-foot fence around the yard. One of them could have crossed the side street and neighbor's yard to poke a head above the fence and, pow, shoot a barking dog. But that seems unlikely on a Sunday afternoon. Possible, but equally unlikely, is that one of them got on the roof and fired across the street and two yards with a BB gun. Again, in the middle of a Sunday afternoon. So then there is the cop. And this is where it gets twisty. You see, the cop used to own Frankie's house and lived there with his wife and two children. In fact, Frankie bought the house from the cop when he sold it after he had his wife committed. I don't know what her trouble was exactly, but I have it on good authority from the next-door neighbor that the fights were many and terrible. And they had two kids, so this was a tragedy on many levels. But the house that Frankie wound up with was a nice house, so I can see how, especially if you're living right behind it, with a deck that looks down into what used to be, 
happier days, your backyard, you might occasionally be bitter about the whole affair. Especially if you go out on your deck and your neighbor's idiot dog barks at you from your old yard. Believe me, I get it. In the course of my investigation, such as it was, Frankie told me that she would often find trash thrown over the fence from the cop's yard into hers. She thought it was the cop's son doing it, but was pretty sure the cop knew all about it. The point is, there was no love lost across the top of that fence. Across the top of the fence, which provided an ideal and discreet firing position into the backyard. So now we've got motive, and we've got opportunity. So let's talk about means. If you've never had a BB gun, you need to understand how they work. They are powered in one of two ways a mechanical spring, or compressed air. For the mechanical spring version, you can think of the Red Rider BB gun from A Christmas Story. Spring-powered BB guns don't have that much force. You can shoot a dog, or, say, a friend of yours if you're playing in the woods with it all day long, and as long as you don't hit an eye, everything will be fine. Compressed air is a different story, especially if they fire pellets. Those can be very powerful and easily kill squirrels, birds, rabbits, or lodge a BB in my dog's rear knee joint, requiring painful and expensive surgery. So I'm pissed that somebody shot my dog. But what can I do? Go to the cops? Well, kinda. See, I can go to the cop, which is exactly what I did, because I knew the guy. I'd seen him in the gym. He was my neighbor. We were on a first-name basis, and we'd always gotten along fine. So I walked right up to the steps, knocked on the door, I told him what happened. Because my operating theory is that he really doesn't like Frankie and her dog, but might feel a pang of remorse if he discovered that he'd unwittingly shot my dog. If he did. So I want to brush him back off the plate a little, and gauge his reaction. There's always a chance, I think, that he might give something away. So I tell him what happened, and then I ask him if he saw or heard anything. He quickly explained how the kids at the rundown house were bad news. That they scared even him, it's a bit disingenuous, I thought, but how he, himself, a cop, called the cops on them. I said that made sense, but I just couldn't see how they could make the shot. That it didn't seem likely that they would run through somebody's yard, boost themselves over the fence, and fire off a shot at the dog. Broad daylight, in the middle of a Sunday afternoon. So I grill him, but I grill him Columbo style. There are many interrogation techniques, but the best one is pretty simple. You ask somebody to tell their story, then you ask them to explain a detail, and then you do it again and again and again. Because lies are very complicated and hard to remember, even for just a few minutes, and they fall apart on their own when the details are examined. Because if you're lying, not only do you have to make up the details, but you have to remember the details you've made up and remember them each time you tell the story perfectly. And at some point, the cognitive load just becomes too much. And I call it Columbo style because you can just play stupid. You know, uh, one more thing. If you've never seen a Columbo movie, do yourself a favor. Peter Falk is amazing, and they're also a very unique subgenre of detective stories. Instead of a whodunit, it's really more of a how caught him. So the cop, with apparent sincerity, said it was awful that my dog had gotten shot. He had no idea how it happened. I even asked him to hypothetical it for me. How do you think such a thing could have happened? I mean, you know more about shooting than I do. You know, that kind of thing. And he didn't rattle a bit. He didn't lose patience or get upset with me asking questions. 
and when I said, I just don't see how it's possible that someone could shoot my dog from over there, he said, I know, it's really strange. He was very, very smooth. Or, you know, innocent. Or was he? Because maybe he was just so polished at telling a consistent story under scrutiny that it was just second nature. Because in the course of remembering this story, I reached out to my best friend about it, the one who was the cop's neighbor for years. And he brought some new evidence to light. When the cop was selling his house, he called in a favor with an animal control guy, a branch of the cops, who came around and threatened my best friend with his dog being a nuisance, which I think is actually only true if the dog barks after 10 p.m. I mean, only true legally. And then the cop suggested that my best friend get a shock collar for his dog. Nefarious. Or is it? So what do you think? And how has what you think changed as I've kept adding facts to the narrative? Here's another one. My friend who was bothered by animal control? His dog actually barked a lot. She bayed like a hound because she was a hound. Or if I tell you that Frankie is not the most reliable of people. A sweetheart and a lot of fun, but every once in a while, somewhere between the third and fourth drink, she would turn really, really horrifically mean. She attacked Johnny with a knife once. She was pretty blasted, so Johnny didn't get cut, but that night he legitimately hid the knives in her kitchen. This mean streak was such a problem, we're not friends with her anymore. So how does that change the story? Or what if I cast suspicion upon the cop and the circumstances under which his wife was committed? Or what if we cast the cop as a hero, the only stability his kids had as their mother is ravaged with a terrible mental disease? Do you see what I'm getting at here? You see how complicated and nuanced this story actually is? In fact, this story might be reading you as much as you're reading it. And if your reading of it is being driven by your opinion of cops as much as anything I've said, you've got a problem. And likewise, if your reading of current events is driven solely by your interactions with the police, you've also got a problem. Just because you've never had a particular experience doesn't mean it doesn't happen. And it doesn't mean it doesn't happen a lot. And if you get mad at any twist in a story about a real event that doesn't agree with your ideological bent, then you may be truly lost. Because reality is very complex. For example, here's another fact about the cop. His girlfriend. I think maybe they got married. She's a college professor and about as ardent of a feminist as you might care to find. As left as you might imagine a cop to be right. But they got on really well together. And maybe somewhere in this relationship is the seed of what we need to bring a divided nation together. So I tell this story precisely because it's not a great story. It doesn't build to an awesome climax. There's no resolution. There's no villain and no hero. Not to say that someone who hurts a defenseless animal isn't a villain. We just don't know who it is. And the person never gets caught. I would say it's a fair bet that a person who hurts animals is an animal that was hurt by somebody else. Not that it excuses the behavior, but this story, like life, is messy and filled with tragedy and suffering at every turn. And that messiness is what we have to deal with whenever we want to make something better. And I think the more ideology you bring to a problem, the certainty that you know A, what is going on, and B, what the right thing to do about it is, the harder it is to actually make a real problem any better. I think this is what H.L. Mencken meant when he said, for every complex problem, there is a solution that is neat, simple, and wrong. It sucks not to be able to resolve the question of who shot my dog. 
But Frankie lived there for six more years, and nothing like that ever happened again. And if I knew, if we had a video, what do you think should be done to a person who shoots a dog with a BB gun? What do you think should happen to a cop that shot my little dog who never barked? Do you think the cop did it? I think there's a chance he did, but I think it's very unlikely. Here's a more likely theory. The cop's son did it. He had way more reasons to be pissed that he'd lost a home he'd grown up in his whole life, and plenty of reason to be hurt and pissed about what happened to his mom. He's probably a little messed up by it, and I certainly would be. Then what do you do if you're the cop? Actually, let's refer to him by his most important title. What do you do if you're a dad and you find out your kid is hurting defenseless animals? That's a rough spot. I don't know what happened. I can't prove any of these speculations, nor do I think, strictly speaking, that they're true. In fact, I don't even think that stories can be true in the sense of being 100% accurate. For me, stories can be true in a different and more powerful way. They can be true in a psychological sense. They can be true like a bell can ring true. Except in the greatest of stories, the reader or listener is the thing which is rung. But to work at all, a story must leave things out. Mostly the long, dull stretches where, from an external perspective, nothing exciting seems to happen. You know, actual life. Our dog Annie healed up and had a great life. A good ten more years. Then she developed a tumor in her stomach and we had to put her down. I dug a hole and we buried her in the backyard. I thought it was important for my kids to have closure, rather than to just have their dog whisked away. Somehow that just seemed wrong to me. But let me tell you, digging a hole, hacking through tree roots, a 98-degree, 100% humidity day in August, sucks. My neighbor from down the street, a guy I barely knew at the time, happened to come by while I was struggling with the grave. When I told him what I was doing, I swear to God, he turned around, he walked back to his house, he got a shovel, and helped me dig that hole. We're friends now. Sometimes, a stranger shoots your dog with a BB gun for no knowable reason. And sometimes, a stranger helps you out with a shitty job on a really difficult day. And the truth of the story, the story of what people are really like, I think that lies somewhere in between. Mm -hmm.